When you ask people, when did Americans start supporting the idea of the establishment of Israel? People often say Truman, 1948. In fact, its roots are much deeper. Another surprise is that it predates American Jewish support. It is worth hearing the author of a fascinating new book who has explored the many layers of this story. Hello, and welcome to Decision Points, a podcast dedicated to exploring the U.S.-Israel relationship. My name is David Markovsky, the Ziegler Distinguished Fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy, and I'm excited to go on this journey through history with you. From a Massachusetts pulpit in 1666, Increase Mather, a prominent Puritan clergyman and one of the first presidents of Harvard University, declared that, quote, the time will surely come when the body of the 12 tribes of Israel shall be brought out of their present condition of bondage and misery into a glorious and wonderful state of salvation, end quote, and, quote, recover the possession of their promised land, end quote. American presidents, clergymen, and many other prominent Americans would follow increased matter. In 1922, the U.S. Senate unanimously supported the Balfour Declaration, the idea of a Jewish homeland in Palestine. The U.S. House of Representatives followed that resolution in a voice vote of consensus. President Warren Harding signed the resolution, launching a tradition of official American support for Zionist aspirations in Palestine that a long line of presidents from both parties have continued. Bridging many different eras of American history was a keen interest among Christian leaders in the Jewish homeland, thereby creating a legacy of bipartisan support for Zionism, known as Restorationism. For some, the idea of a Jewish homeland would have the added benefit of less pressure upon the American immigration system from a variety of ethnic backgrounds immigration had become less popular in the United States after World War I. Once the enormity of the Holocaust had become clear to all, the debate ended for Jews and Gentiles alike. The aftermath of World War II solidified the existing consensus in support for the creation of a Jewish state. Despite the fact that America has the world's second largest Jewish population, the U.S.-Israel relationship developed more because of the non-Jewish population in the United States than because of its Jews. While Zionist thought had run through many American Christians for centuries, it took a long evolution of American Jewish thought, from anti-Zionism in favor of assimilation in the United States towards a supportive position molded by the genocidal catastrophe of the Holocaust for Jews and non-Jews to converge and support for Israel. Fitting with Truman's self-declared nickname as Cyrus, the hurdles his administration crossed to recognize the state of Israel were almost of biblical proportions. Resolution 181, calling for the partition of Palestine, had to be passed by a two-thirds supermajority in the new United Nations, with the endorsement of the Soviet Union in the early stages of the Cold War. So both America and the Soviet Union on the same side. No easy feat. Then, after the civil war broke out in Palestine, following the resolution in November 1947, it looked like the Jews were being pummeled and the Jewish community of Jerusalem was under siege. America's representative to the United Nations, even when over Truman's head, 
and called on the UN to reconsider partition, infuriating America's allies and liberals at home. It angered Truman himself, no less. Our author today takes a provocative view, challenged by many. Only when the Soviet satellite of Czechoslovakia shocked the Yeshuv, the Jewish community of pre-state Palestine, by arming them with Messerschmitt and advanced weaponry that had originally been paid for by Hitler's Wehrmacht, the tide of war changed. Still, two days before the expiration of the British mandate, in a heated Oval Office meeting with President Truman and his counsel, Clark Clifford, to discuss how to react if the Jews of Palestine declared a state, Secretary of State and hero of World War II, George Marshall, stated plainly that if Truman were to recognize the state of Israel, he might not be able to vote for him in the next election. Indeed, the State Department and the rest of the foreign policy establishment was on Marshall's side. Nevertheless, on May 14, 1948, the state of Israel was established and Truman and the United States became the first in the international community to recognize its existence. It did so within minutes of the Israeli declaration. The U.S.-Israel relationship has strengthened over the years, underpinning extensive cooperation in defense, trade, and technology. But practical concerns aren't the only thing that bind Israel and the U.S. together. Israel's founding, coming at the end of a half-century of tremendous war and brutality across large swaths of the world, crystallized in the horrors of the Holocaust, had a deep emotional resonance with many Americans. For some, it was religious in nature, and for others, a sense that there was a hope for a better world to arise from the ashes of the Second World War. And this was underpinned by a new United Nations and universal humanitarian principles. The U.S.-Israel relationship has not always been smooth, but its foundations are deep. To discuss the evolution of Zionism in America and the U.S.'s subsequent foreign policy towards the Jewish state, we are pleased to welcome to our podcast the Wall Street Journal foreign affairs columnist and scholar at the Hudson Institute, Walter Russell Mead, the author of this new fascinating book, The Arca of a Covenant, the United States, Israel, and the Fate of the Jewish People. Walter is known to Americans as someone who is riveted by history and who likes to put issues in the wider context of American foreign policy. Walter Russell Mead, thank you for coming and joining Decision Points. This is a magisterial book. A core thesis in your book is that American support for Israel has been based on the support of non-Jews, and this has not been focused on in many of the other books, and that the conspiracy theory suggesting that there's Jewish financial media power that has hijacked American foreign policy, that this is an an anti-Semitic myth. Can you give the listener a brief history of your case in the Ark of the Covenant when it comes to the support of non-Jews, the Gentile community in America for Zionism, for the establishment of the state of Israel? You can go back to 17th century Boston and you find preachers like Increase Mather telling their congregations that the Bible prophesies that at the climax of history, the Jewish people will return to their biblical homeland. Or you can look at John Adams, second president, who told a good friend of his, I'd love to see you returning to the land of your forefathers at the head of a conquering army. You can look at the colonization missions when actually 
Americans went over in the 19th century to Jerusalem to try to persuade the Jews to start farming because they believed that if the Jews would embrace a healthy American lifestyle of farming and democracy, then the Jewish people, so poor and so oppressed and so despised, would rise again to become respected. And the land that was, Mark Twain said, the only thing worse than uh, Palestine he'd ever seen was Arizona. The blighted land would bloom. The blighted people would prosper. You can actually, to this day, go to the American Colony Hotel in Jerusalem and see the remains of one of these attempts. You know, the Jews in Jerusalem didn't really want to go farming. They wanted to stay inside and study Torah. They didn't want to be out in the hot sun farming. So the mission failed. But in 1891, before there is an organized Jewish Zionist move, before Herzl has written Der Judenstadt, President Benjamin Harrison is sitting peacefully in the White House one day when his secretary of state comes in and hands him a petition that he used, that Harrison used America's influence in the world to promote the establishment of a Jewish state in the lands of the Bible. This petition is signed by John D. Rockefeller, J.P. Morgan, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, the Speaker of the House of Representatives, and a galaxy of the leading intellectuals, newspaper editors, theologians of the American establishment. The WASP American establishment was Zionist before either the American Jewish community or Jews worldwide. There was definitely a sense in America when the Zionist movement begins among Jews, it's not, oh no, those Jews, they're always trying to make us do things. Now they're going to try to make us support a Jewish state in the Holy Land. It was more like, hey, finally the Jews are figuring it out. And there's been this sense since that time, you know, when the Jews actually do decide, let's go back to the lands of the Bible and let's farm. And let's build a democracy, all right? The land blooms, the people bloom, the Jews that had been despised, considered hopeless and oppressed and all of this emerge as a strong, powerful, and respected people. Americans saw this as a sign that American principles work. And so there's been this connection in the minds of a lot of Americans, non-Jewish Americans, that Israel's success is America's success. There's one other thing I think it's worth looking at, and that is, let's put ourselves back in the 1940s in the shoes of people then. I think it's 1944, terrible war beginning to come to an end, and the Soviet troops are beginning to liberate the extermination camps in Poland. You know, there'd been reports of the Holocaust before and newspaper accounts and so on, but this is different. You're seeing newsreel photos of survivors. You're seeing all of the terrible footage that we've all become much too familiar with today. And this shoots the enlightenment in the heart. The whole idea that's so central to American and Western culture that technological progress, economic progress will make better human beings. As we build an enlightened society, we're going to stop doing terrible things to each other. We're going to start being the kind of people we should be. 
All right. Now you see the Holocaust and not in some flea bitten, miserable hole in the corner, but in Germany, where the philosophy and the music and the culture of the Enlightenment had reached this extraordinary height. In Germany, you find an evil as stark and as horrifying as anything in the whole history of the human race. The Enlightenment's a fraud. Next thing, what do you see? 1945, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. This species that you've just realized is capable of infinite evil has now grasped something close to infinite power. And human beings now have the ability to destroy themselves and maybe life on Earth. Horrifying. I honestly think our entire world is still shaking from that experience And I'm speaking, of course, in a week when the president of the United States has been talking about the possibility of a nuclear Armageddon with Russia. And we've been under those shadows since the 40s. And then in 1948, the state of Israel, against all odds, emerges and defends its independence. Now, to an American culture where people had been accustomed for centuries to the idea that the return of the Jews to the Bible was part of God's plan for the world. This is a sign of hope that the God of Abraham, the God of the Bible, is still active today, still moving in history. Yes, there's nuclear weapons. Yes, there are horrible tyrannies and horrible crimes. But God is there. He is powerful. He is acting. And that sense that is the existence of Israel is a beacon of hope and a sign, whether you're a fundamentalist Christian who believes in the literal truth of every word in the Bible, or whether you're more, I don't know, liberal, and you say, well, you know, some of it is metaphorical, and they weren't all written. There might be four Isaiahs, not just one Isaiah. True enough, but the whole Bible was finished long before 1948. And so there is this sense that God is still there. And I don't think we should underestimate the power of that feeling to this very day in the United States. That was very powerful. The role of providence in history, and you've written a book on this, is something that is a magnet for so many. You know, you write in there, when you talk about the support for Zionism, you say that this also, the backdrop of 1924, of the restrictions on immigration, that there had been this massive Jewish immigration from 1881, as you write, until 1924. That for some people, yeah, it was easy to say, yeah, the Jews should go over there, that it's because they didn't want them over here. And if you remember, I think it was, it was Atley or Bevan himself. So when he was having a fight with Truman over the displaced persons and said, they're for them having a state in the land of Israel because they don't want them in New York. What do you say to those who wonder of this idea of restoration that comes out of the 19th century theology But it is rooted also in a sense that Americans, at least some, didn't want Jews in our country here in the United States. Well, I'd say, first of all, that Jews were only a small percentage of that mass immigration that came into the U.S. between about 1880 and 1924. And never in that time 
was there any special legislation against Jewish immigration? And the quota system actually didn't take any account of whether someone was Jewish or not. And in fact, because Germany had a very large quota under that system, German Jews had more quota places of open to them than, say, non-Jewish Poles. So it was part of an overall anti-immigration more than simply an anti-Jewish immigration. But it's still, it is, I think, historically important, and I say this in the book, that probably the most important single decision that the United States ever made contributing to the emergence of the state of Israel was the decision to block mass immigration from Europe. Because without that, I think it's likely there would never have been enough Jews in Palestine to create a state. That the, the, the percentage of Jews who came to the United States rather than Palestine was, you know, 95 to 1 or something on that order. You know, this has always been a real factor. And in that sense, too, well, it just shows, I think, how history resists simplistic interpretations. Because Congress in 1922, almost 100 years ago to the month as we're speaking now, passed a joint resolution by overwhelming majorities incorporating the Balfour Declaration into American policy and law, supporting the British call to create a Jewish homeland huge bipartisan majority. So a hundred year tradition of bipartisan support for the Zionist cause. But at the same time, again, this is the Congress that passes the immigration restriction. For those who believe that there's a secret Jewish cabal manipulating American politics, what's interesting is that American Jews united to oppose the Immigration Restriction Act which is what in fact contributed to Israel, and were actually divided on the support of Balfour. The leading prominent American Jews, the ones who were, you know, had a lot of money and were important in politics, were almost unanimously anti-Zionist in 1922. So the New York Times in the 19th century had a non-Jewish owner and was pro-Zionist was actually bought by, at the time, a Jewish owner and became anti-Zionist when a Jew bought it. So this kind of correlation somehow between the power of American Jews and the actions of the United States that promote or support Israel, you can never find a time when that's a good description of what's going on. Well said. I mean, Louis Brandeis was a minority voice, correct? Although he was key on the Balfour Declaration with Woodrow Wilson, it wasn't really until the Holocaust that it became impolitique for American Jews to say they were against the creation of a Jewish state. It's really, you're right, 1941, I think, sort of leaders of the American Jewish community kind of go on record supporting the aspiration of a Jewish state. Before then, if you were raising money for Jews in Palestine, your fundraising appeal had to explicitly state you were not supporting any political aims. This was for the support of poor refugee Jews in Palestine. I would say the Biltmore Conference in a hotel in New York in 1942 
which was attended by Ben-Gurion and Weizmann themselves. That was really a signal moment. Let me go to another core contention of the book, which is arresting. And it is amazing to me that it has not been written until your book, which says that the idea of Truman's main focus, of course, is to win the Cold War. He, as you point out so well, the national security apparatus, this is the overwhelming force of American foreign policy. But there were some in his own party that would, Henry Wallace, for sure, that progressive wing of the Democratic Party. There were some who believed in it, but not maybe as starkly as Truman did. And you point out that, you know, many of of the liberal Democrats were the ones who spearheaded the support of Zionism. And you take this further and say, at the key moment when it looked like Truman might be waffling and that he was going to retract, and you correlate it to also what's going on in the battlefield, between the UN partition vote of of November 47 and March 48, you say it's not just the State Department. He's also seeing at both ends of this that maybe these guys are going to lose and maybe I should rescind. But you said what, what seemed to tip the balance was that the liberal wing, as embodied by Eleanor Roosevelt, the iconic president's widow, she saw this as basically a referendum on the new international body, and this was one of its first most important decisions. And to retract that commitment would be a vote of no confidence in the United Nations. And in order to preserve the unity of the Democratic Party on the Cold War, he had to be seen as emphatically supportive. And therefore, he does not rescind. He does not retract. It was a complicated story. But what I saw in the record is that Truman actually never sort of on his own endorses the concept of an independent Jewish state. He's always acting reactively. And the thing that he fought with the British over was this issue of 100,000 visas for displaced survivors of the Holocaust in the refugee camps in Europe for 100,000 to go to the British mandate of Palestine. Uh, This, he thought, was something he could get the British to do. It's what Ben-Gurion had said. This this was the deliverable that it looked to Truman that he could get past the British and would sort of get him off the hook politically. And he never really goes beyond that in his dealings with the British. Then... The British in the winter of 1947. By the way, just not to interrupt, but if you look at the famous statement he made to synagogues across America, right in the fall of 1946, it's what I would call like kind of a Mona Lisa kind of letter. Like any way you look at it, she smiles at you. I mean, it was really artfully written. He falls short, I think, of really emphatic support for the establishment of Israel. He said, well, there's this one plan here and the Jewish community want this. I think this is very bridgeable. But, you know, I think that's a sign of the fact that he had this ambiguity to him. You see, the, the thing that happens is that the Labor Party in Britain had always been seen as the more pro-Zionist of the two political parties. And the Zionists in British Palestine and in the U.S., celebrated when Churchill was defeated in 45 because they thought now it was going to be easy. 
But as the labor government looked at its economic prospects and the world situation, they quickly realized that Britain couldn't really survive as a great power, much less provide a good living standard to the British people, unless they could keep the oil-producing Arab states in the British orbit after World War II. They were going to lose India. That was clear. Labor didn't even want to keep India. But the Middle East was the foundation of British power. And from a U.S. point of view, if you were a cold warrior already and you were worried about the future, Britain was the only possible serious American ally against the Soviet Union. France was in ruins. Germany was a wreck. There was nobody. So it, so you, you know, are you going to really sort of rip up the British Empire? And Truman is trying to walk this very fine line. Now, Franklin Roosevelt's foreign policy, was, as it was understood by the party and everybody else, was we're not going to actually be too close to Britain. We're not going to form a kind of a conservative alliance with Britain. We're going to have a progressive foreign policy and the UN is going to be the center of that foreign policy. And we're going to win over Stalin's cooperation by respecting his interests and working with Stalin through the UN. I mean, it sounds crazy to us now, but, you know, think of all the people and, you know, think of Hillary Clinton with the reset button for Putin. Think of Bush gazing into Putin's eyes and seeing his soul. Or, you know, this is not the only time Americans have been fundamentally deceived about what they were dealing with. And there was also this other business. I mean, World War I, 20 years later, World War II, even worse, ending with nuclear weapons. People felt this has to stop. There's only one way to stop it, and that is the United Nations, international law. And in particular, the leading cause of wars in the 100 years leading up to World War II were these nationalist disputes, two different peoples that are claiming the same piece of territory. You know, Armenians and Turks, Greeks and Turks, French and Germans over Alsace-Lorraine. And so the idea now when the British, who've gone broke in the winter of 1947 and given up trying to hold on to Palestine, they throw this issue to the United Nations and to liberals. This is the God-sent opportunity. You know, the UN is now going to solve by compromise and fairly one of these thorny international disputes between peoples. And this is the beginning of a new age and a beginning of new peace. And by the way, the fact that the Jews and the Jewish state were involved in this just made it seem sort of more like, wow, this is the climax of history, the dawn of a new era, the birth of Israel will be the birth of a new era of international law and world peace. How perfect is that, right? And then when the Soviet Union in the spring of 1947 announces that it could support partition, and in the fall, the Soviet Union and its puppets vote for partition, this looks, again, to the liberal crowd as if this is the dawn they've been waiting for. The UN, in a fair vote with both the U.S. and the, and the Soviet Union are not on the committee that draws up the resolution on Palestine. Fair, open vote. The international law 
comes up with this plan for a two-state solution, and the, the U.S. and the Soviet Union agree on it. Wow, this is fantastic. And you can just, you can hear them purring in the history books through all of this. This is what they hoped for. This is what they wanted. There was just one problem, which was that the resolution was completely unenforceable, especially because the British are still signaling the Arabs, we don't want anything to do with this. We're on your side. So the British are not helping the UN do the transformation. The Arabs reject the whole idea that the UN can rule on sovereign Arab land and let the colonial masters decide what to do with it. But for liberal Americans, this becomes the great test. Are we going to stand by the UN and the UN resolution? But Truman's problem, and this is a serious problem, is that the Jews are losing the war. The, the fighting begins almost immediately after the resolution is passed. The State Department imposes an arms embargo on the whole Middle East, which liberals kind of think, well, that's fair. Wars are bad. Arms are bad. If we don't sell arms, there can't be any killing. What a great idea. The Arabs, however, are getting arms from the British and are being trained by the British so the American arms embargo is actually favoring the British. That's fine with the State Department. They want to favor the British. And so what we get here is as the Jews are starting to lose the war, the pressure on the liberals now is that Truman should send troops or do something to save the Jews, save, save the UN resolution. And Truman doesn't want to do this. In part, he can't. The Joint Chiefs are telling him that with the Cold War starting, America does not have any forces for this. And in fact, in the spring, Truman will have to announce the first peacetime draft, um, and which is a disaster for any president. You can imagine what this does to your poll numbers when you announce a draft. So he's trying to figure out he can't do a military option. The Jews are losing the war. The State Department, which thought this whole thing was a stupid idea from the beginning, is saying, look, here's what we're going to have to do. We're going to have to extend the UN mandate so that the Jews don't proclaim independence on the day the British mandate leaves. We try to get the British to stay. The British are not having anything to do with this, but we'll find somebody. We'll, we'll find somebody somewhere. Now, the liberals are saying at this point, well, if we're not going to send in an American force, let's, let's have a UN force come in, which of course would mean the Soviet Union as a permanent member. And the idea that as the Cold War is stepping up, we're going to have Soviet troops in the Middle East strikes Truman and the chiefs of staff and the State Department as completely crazy. So Truman is now trapped into opposing or failing to support the United Nations resolution, which he voted for. And we could go into this forever. As you know, it's a very complex story. But Truman actually, in, even after his famous meeting with Kein Weizmann, Truman does not ever advocate an Israeli declaration of independence. In fact, the last thing the governing body of the Yeshuv does before it declares independence is it rejects an appeal from Washington to delay the declaration of independence. So Truman's policy 
remains to try to extend the UN mandate in order to negotiate some sort of compromise solution. And the argument, the famous, famous argument where Clark Clifford and George Marshall are really going at it, hammer and tongs with Truman, is Marshall is basically seeing the whole thing as politics. And he's saying, really, you're going to encourage the Jews. Marshall still believes the Jews are going to lose the war. He's entirely convinced, as is basically almost all leading professional military opinion at this point. And so what Marshall sees is it's going to be a humanitarian catastrophe. The Jews will be driven to the beaches. You know, the Etzion block is falling as all of this is happening, the big siege outside Jerusalem. So he, he foresees the Jews going down to the beaches. We have no forces to help them, a second great tragedy. And he sees Truman, who would be sort of encouraging this madness if he recognizes them for votes. That's why Marshall thinks it's so cynical and disgusting, right? But what Clifford's point is, is that, look, at this point, the State Department doesn't have a policy. Their policy has failed. Their policy was to try to extend the UN mandate. The mandate is coming to an end. The Jews are not going to extend the mandate. And furthermore, you don't have anybody who wants to have the mandate. No one wants this. And the Soviet Union every day in the UN is saying, look at America. They aren't supporting the sacred resolution of the United Nations. What hypocrites. They've gone back on their word, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So Clifford is basically saying, look, what you can do now is just recognize them. It doesn't cost you anything. That way, you will at least bring yourself kind of back into compliance with the UN and be on the side of the angels, which Truman does. And also, again, beat the Soviet Union to recognition because the Soviet Union would recognize Israel and very grandly say, and we're doing this in accordance with the United Nations, unlike that renegade state, the United States. So Clifford's plan was actually more realistic than Marshall's plan. And Marshall, again, interpreted this as stupid Zionist, short-sighted American Jews pushing Truman for a total demagogic policy. It doesn't look to me like that's what was going on. And you point out in the book how the battle really started to turn. And you point to the Czech weapons and say this couldn't have happened without Stalin, even in March of 1948. And you're saying that's what Marshall was missing, how the battle was turned. By the way, many do not believe that it was the Czech weapons that made the difference because much of it arrived after the state was established and the new state of Israel had access to its own borders and was not patrolled by the British that didn't allow the weapons in. It was clear that the May 8th meeting between Marshall and Charette, known then as Shertak, the prototype foreign minister of Ben-Gurion. Charette, he said, if you want to delay as a way station towards accepting the state, that's something the Zionists could think about. But if it's a delay to nowhere, just for the sake of delay, the Jews have waited for 2,000 years, he would say, you know, we're all Zionists here. And then he, he leaves a tantalizing hint, Charette does, that We've talked through the British to the Jordanians about them taking the, the land that would have gone, that the Palestinians don't want it, 
but the Jordanians might, and we might be able to work something out with them, and they would stay out of the war. I agree with you 100% that Marshall, I think, genuinely thought this was going to be a humanitarian catastrophe. He wasn't anti-Semitic or anything. He genuinely thought the Jews couldn't win, and he said to Charette at a key moment, he said, be careful of your generals. You know, here's a guy who won World War II. He says to them, they become intoxicated with their victories, like as if, okay, you've opened the road to Jerusalem, doesn't mean you're going to win a war in the Middle East. You know, I think Marshall truly thought that this was going to go in a terrible direction. But as you point out in the book, he wasn't really up to date with developments on the ground that had shifted since March to May. And of course, the Israelis are not going to tell the Americans that they're giving the Czechs hard currency. Because again, the Czech communists are facing a terrible economic disaster after their February coup. And Czechoslovakia was devastated economically as a result of the war. So in fact, this money is actually helping the Soviet Union consolidate its bloc and is utterly counter to American policy. So the Jews are not going to say, oh, don't worry, Stalin is sending us everything we want, and it just means giving him a little hard currency. You know, that's not going to be it. In terms of the complexity of the relationship between the Israelis and the Americans, instead of seeing an America which is tied hand and foot by the Jewish lobby in America to obey every will of Israel, what you see are two states each with its own vision of what's happening, pursuing its own interests as it understands them. And the Israelis, I think, have more success than the Americans. But as I say in the the book, it wasn't Truman who saved the Jews in 1948. It was the Jews with an assist from Stalin who end up saving Truman and helping him escape this political trap that he found himself in. Been a long way from 48. And your book deals with a lot of this. The idea of Israel was the darling of the most progressive wing of the Democratic Party in 48. So how have you traversed that journey where the most progressives are not so supportive of Israel? All this hope of the 90s that somehow this combination, as you point out, of Wilsonianism, Hamiltonianism, you know, the idea that there will be political moderation due to self-determination and due to economic lifting of all boats, of a middle-class life, The vision of the 90s has gotten very much entangled. How would you condense this for a reader to make it succinct, to understand how these alliances in the 40s have so shifted? And you point out in the book how identity politics within our own country here in the U.S. has certainly complicated things in the U.S.-Israel relationship. One thing I would say is that in the 40s and 50s, that the Democratic Socialists of America used to say, You tell us that socialist countries can't be democratic. Look at Israel. You tell us that socialist countries won't be serious about foreign policy. Look at Israel. You tell us that socialism is always a failure. Look at Israel. All right. And so Israel's economic policies and the sort of social character of the majority parties in the Zionist movement were well to the left of anything in European social democracy. And not just in the U.S., but in Western Europe, Israel was the darling of the left. And as far as the Palestinians, the left sort of said, look, the United Nations voted 
And no one gets everything that they want, and no one will be. The Jews didn't get everything they want. The UN has to take tough decisions. But if we don't accept the decisions of the United States, we're going right back to World War III, and we can't have that. So your selfish nationalism is getting in the way of the kind of world peace that we all need. And that was very consistently the left's view. That obviously begins to change over time. But in general, American Democrats were much more pro-Israel in the 50s, 60s, and even the 70s than Republicans. And Democrats attacked the Republican Party in the Middle East because, well, you're siding with the Arabs, and that's because big oil. Uh, Republicans are close to the big oil companies, and here's this plucky democracy, and you are siding with these fascist and monarchist and clericalist Islamist kings and rulers simply because you want the oil, and that is a sign of how corrupt our politics are. That was the scope. In terms of American national interest, in the 1950s, and actually even into the Kennedy administration for part of it, and Dennis has written about this as well, Dennis Ross, Eisenhower's goal, America's goal, was to get an alliance with Nasser and to ally Americans with Arab nationalism because that was the way to beat Russia, to show we're not like Britain and France, those imperialist powers, and we'll help Egypt develop and become rich and prosperous and we'll work with the army, which is the most modernizing force in Egypt and in Turkey and in a number of Latin American countries. We have this whole idea of working with modernizing military reformers to build nationalist regimes in post-colonial countries that could resist the Soviet Union. And that did sort of mean throwing Israel under the bus. Eisenhower was willing to see the Negev taken from Israel and given to Egypt, he was willing to, obviously at the time of the Suez Canal, he sided with the Suez incident in 56, he sided with Egypt against Israel, Britain, and France. The first president who's seriously interested in a strong relationship with Israel is Kennedy, not necessarily for a pure pro-Israel reason. Kennedy's horrifying nightmare was that Israel was going to develop nuclear weapons. And remember, in the early 1960s, this is very early in proliferation. At that point, only Britain and France, the Soviet Union, and the U.S. had nuclear weapons. By the way, if I could, I think his showdown with Ben-Gurion, if I recall, was December 62, which was just two months, three months after the Cuban Missile Crisis. So it was very vivid for Kennedy. He thought, unlike Eisenhower, he didn't have to choose between Arab nationalism and Zionism. He made much more friendly comments. He, he talked about American Jewish support in 1960. He didn't feel that Israel was a liability. He thought he could do both, walk and chew gum. But you're right that nonproliferation, I think, for him was a guiding force. And he felt that Israel could never, would never give up its nuclear quest unless it felt it had a relationship with the U.S. strong enough and weapons capable enough to stop the Arabs with conventional weapons. And that's really when the U.S.-Israel arms relationship sort of begins to develop. But those are the motives. 
So how does this change? How does the left move away from Israel and the right embrace it? The left story is not just an American story because all over Europe, the left gradually moves away from Israel in the 60s and 70s. As usual, the European left is farther to the left than the American left. It goes left faster and it goes left farther than the American left. And so that's happened on Israel policy as well as other things. The Democratic Party, while it has people who are very anti-Israel in it, on the whole is extremely moderate about Israel and, and in fact supportive of Israel. So it's, it's kind of flabby and weak-willed compared to the European left-wing parties. But it's that way not just on Israel, but on almost every issue. American Democrats are to the right of most European social democratic center-left parties. So the pattern is there. The left's reasons are, I think, fairly obvious in some ways. Israel is no longer the underdog, but as it becomes an occupying power, For the same reasons people were concerned about the Jews in the past, they start taking an interest in the Palestinians. It's very natural, particularly in Europe, where France and Britain had both supported Israel at the time of Suez and in the French case later as part of a larger anti-Arab policy. The French policy of trying to keep their colony in Algeria or keep French Algeria French required cooperation with Israel. And as a new generation in France looked at that colonial policy and the horrors of the war, Israel comes under this colonialist umbrella, and it becomes a kind of a generational mark. The 68ers are a generation that starts to move away from Israel, and some of that happens here in the U.S. More interesting, in a way, is why does the right in America become pro-Israel? That's where the American development is really unique. And we don't really have time on this podcast to go into several chapters of the book where I try to look at it. But actually, Israel in the, in the 1970s starts becoming much more appealing to the American right. And there's several reasons. One is success. In America, we're losing the Vietnam War. People are very depressed. And here's Israel, 1967. Wow, now that's a country. Israel begins to break with socialism. In the 1970s, as Likud begins to introduce financial changes and economic reforms, Israel becomes a poster child of Thatcherism rather than a poster child of democratic socialism. And so free market people can say, ah, even Israel, the most socialist country in the Western democratic camp, has realized this stuff doesn't work. And so it flips. And that annoys a lot of people on the left. I can remember seeing some of that happening. And it heartens a lot of people on the right. Israel also moves away from being aggressively secular where the Israel of the 50s and 60s, while the religious parties are part of the coalition and stuff, it's an aggressively secular nation. But the Likud and some of the other parties that move into government beginning in the 70s are often much more hospitable to religion. And this begins to resonate in America as well. 
And I think there's another element, which is, you know, we hear about Jacksonians in American foreign policy, American populist nationalists who, you know, let's just imagine a few rockets started coming over the American border from Mexico and bombing towns in Texas. There'd be a lot of people in America who would want a huge, overwhelming military response to go into Mexico and just crush whatever was doing that and until no one would ever even dream of doing it again. That would be the instinct of a lot of Americans to do that. And so when they see Israel, a few rockets come in from Gaza, much of the world says then Israel brings in the Air Force and the army and the tanks and they come through and they say, well, this is disproportionate. Yes, in Gaza, Hamas was wrong to send those rockets over the frontier. But when Israel retaliated excessively, that was as bad in its way as the original attack by Hamas and all, and the casualties, the civilian casualties that result from the Israeli response are possibly even war crimes, but they're wrong. The kind of American folk Jacksonian view of war is if the terrorists launch a sneak attack, first of all, you have every right to go in and crush all the terrorists. And second, While you should certainly do your best to avoid civilian casualties, every ounce of blood, every drop of blood shed in that violence is the fault of the people who started it. And there is no fault attached to forces trying to defend against terrorism, particularly if the terrorists do something like put their rockets under a school. You should try to figure out a way not to bomb the school. But if you do bomb the school, the blood is on the hands of the terrorists. Americans actually, not everybody in America, we're a very pluralistic country. We have different attitudes. But a big chunk of Americans, when they see Israel behaving in this way, think, wow, I wish more countries did that. There'd be less terrorism if more people behave like Israel. And then they see Israel as a better ally than European countries. I mean, here we are constantly whining at these, oh, please, Germany, spend a little bit more on defense. And they don't do it. So they completely rely on us for defense. And they're constantly complaining about the way we do it. Ah, you should do this. You should do that. You Americans, you're too warlike. Complain, complain, complain. But by the way, have troops in our country so no one will attack us. Right. The Americans look at Israel and Israel spends a lot of money on its own defense. It does not ask for American bases to defend it from its enemies. It asks for arms and aid to defend against its enemies and is clearly spending a lot of money. Plus, it offers something, its intelligence capabilities and so on. So for a lot of Americans, Israel is the model of a good ally while Germany and France are examples of bad allies. And for that reason, people they like it. Again, this is not universal. Americans have a lot of different ways of looking at the world. But we should not underestimate the degree to which the U.S.-Israel relationship satisfies the criteria that a lot of Americans have when they think, who's a good ally, who's a bad ally. 
Yes. I mean, and to be fair to Germany, I should say that they tripled their defense budget now with the Ukraine, but it's been for decades. It hasn't been that way. But yes, and certainly 9-11 had to have been a seminal moment in Americans confronting issues that we never had to confront because we had uh, the liquid assets of, of the Pacific and the Atlantic, and we didn't have to worry about that. And now we were looking for people who had to deal with terrorism and, you know, pure rejectionism. You know, on one hand, you talk about the exceptionalism. You say the idea of a special relationship with the Jewish people and the Jewish state is a thread that runs through American history and is closely associated with the ideas of American exceptionalism and providential nationalism at at the core of American ideology. So I thought like that summed up so much of your book in terms of how American exceptionalism fits. If I could link it to a wider issue, which is you as a foreign policy thinker, columnist of the Wall Street Journal on foreign policy. You know, foreign policy, there's kind of a values proposition and there's an interest proposition. And the values proposition is you're like us, we're like you. There's this identification with Israel. But there's also the interest proposition, which is America, and you allude to this, is the idea of American retrenchment from the Middle East, a a kind of a pivot to Asia and the Pacific, and a sense that, well, if we're going to retrench, we certainly want our friends in the Middle East to be not just talking to each other, but working together. And in that sense, the Abraham Accords really fit. And so if you were to kind of speculate about the trajectory of U.S.-Israel relations going forward, Where does it go? What is the equilibrium between these two ideas of a values proposition and an interest proposition? It's a mix. And different people, even in the same administration, will look at the same question differently. So there are people in the Biden administration who are primarily values-driven when they look at American foreign policy, and there are others who are interest-driven. And the policy that emerges tends to be a you know, sort of a coalition and a compromise between different views. That's just the way American foreign policy works. But if we talk about what is the interest proposition, what is the connection between Israel and American interests, I personally believe it's a very strong and likely an enduring one because the Middle East, like it or not, for the foreseeable future, its oil is going to be awfully important in the world. And the financial resources that the oil provides are not insignificant either. And the United States, since World War II, has had the idea that we don't want any hostile or potentially hostile country dominating the Middle East to the extent that they would be able to interrupt the oil flow. Because even if we don't need Middle Eastern oil ourselves, the Japanese, the Indians, the Europeans do. And if some hostile power were to cut off Middle East oil, you'd have a depression in Europe, a depression in India, a depression in Japan. Well, that would mean a financial crisis, a stock market wipeout, and a lot of terrible things happening here. And because energy is fungible, and we would have a price crisis here. So we want the flow of Middle Eastern oil as far as possible to be on market terms and to not be vulnerable to disruption by hostile powers. Now, Israel does not spend a lot of time necessarily, oh, we want to make sure that Japan always gets oil from the Middle East. That's not Israel's focus. But the thing is, 
for any country to become powerful enough in the Middle East to threaten the oil supplies, it has to become powerful enough to threaten the security of Israel. So, for example, if Iran were to be strong enough to be able to close down oil through the Persian Gulf and so on and so forth, it would be an existential threat to Israel or Turkey, the same, or Russia, the same. So Israel's strategic interest calls for a balance of power in the Middle East with no one country dominant. And Israel itself is too small to aspire realistically to rule the Middle East, to be the new empire of the Middle East. At this fundamental level of strategic interest, U.S. and Israeli interests point in the same direction. The real question then is, will Americans continue to regard the Middle East as important? Because, you know, you'll have, for example, people, Greens say, hey, pretty soon, really soon, we're going to transition away from fossil fuels and all that oil is just not going to be interesting. It'll just be a stranded asset in the ground. And okay, maybe Saudi Arabia will be making a lot of solar power, but that's just not the same kind of essential interest. So maybe we in America are going to pay less attention to the Middle East. And it's clear that if we do, we'll care less about the importance of Israel in our foreign policy or the security of Israel from an interest point of view. There might still be a values link, but the interest link would become weaker. So it's all about, as it has been, I would argue, since 1948, it's not about the power of the Israel lobby. It's about what are the strategic interests of the United States and how do they align with those of the state of Israel. But this is not what some political scientists would call a pure realist argument, because as I understand it, different people understand the national interest in different ways. It's not like you go look at the thermometer and it's obvious what the temperature is. It's people have subjective judgments about what the national interest is based on their own sense of how the world works and what matters. So that means it'll always be contentious, our policy toward Israel, and different people will make arguments both in values terms and in interest terms that we shouldn't have such a close relationship, and others in both values and interest terms will be arguing that we should. But I think that core reality, that as long as the Middle East matters to us at all, we will want a balance of power there, and that Israel is a natural ally for any power seeking a balance of power in the Middle East, I think that is going to be the dominant reality in that game. Well, I want to thank you so much, Walter Russell Mead, for such a stimulating conversation and so wide ranging. And if there's people wanting a very wide lens view of how American support for Israel has evolved over time, you would do so well to read The Ark of the Covenant. I want to thank you very, very much, Walter Russell Mead, for joining Decision Points with us today. Thank you, Dave. With America so polarized today, we always crave a better time, a time of bipartisanship. Some date that bipartisanship to be fairly recent, but Walter Russell Mead 
in his book shows us that bipartisanship, when it came to support for a Jewish state, actually has a long history. The support does not just come from the clergy, but it had support from the titans of industry like J.P. Morgan, and it had virtually unanimous support in the U.S. Congress. Mead also demonstrates that support for the creation of the Jewish state was the darling of American progressives, who identified its creation as being synonymous with one of the first declarations of this new United Nations, founded after World War II ended and at a time of hope for a better future. According to Mead, the idea of the creation of the Jewish state and the UN were so popular with progressives that Truman thought it would even consolidate his support within his own party for his internationalist foreign policy that was based on the idea of broad alliances in dealing with the long struggle with Russia. Yet Meade shows that there was one group that was not powerful at that time to make a massive political difference, American Jews. He shows that they were so weak that they could not convince the U.S. to bomb the railroad tracks to Auschwitz, nor could they stop the U.S. arms embargo to the Mideast in the 1948 war. It was this very weakness of Jews around the world that bolstered the need for the very creation of the state because stateless Jews were defenseless Jews. Yet fortunately for Israel, there were still deep roots among the American people. And this is a lesson today, that political support flows from that broad support. With all the shifts in American opinion over the decades, this remains essential for the U.S.-Israel relations to continue to flourish in the future. I want to thank all of our listeners from all over the world. I hope you listened to all of season four and to all previous seasons. You can find Decision Points on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcast, as well as on the Washington Institute website. Download and subscribe to never miss an episode. While you're there, please leave us a review and rating and tell your friends. I want to thank all those who made this podcast possible. Our coordinators, Gabriel Epstein, David Patkin, and Jonah Schrock, and our researchers, Valeria De La Fuente and Stuart Harris. I also want to thank Jeff Rubin, Scott Rogers, Carolina Krauskopf, and Maria Rodacci of the Washington Institute. And finally, Adrian Bain, our producer, and Richard Myron from Earshot Strategies. Thank you all. <laughs>